Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Men in Blazers ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Join Prize Picks, America's number one fantasy sports app with more than 3 million members. You can win up to 25 times your money by picking more or less. Download the app today and use code MIB for a first deposit match of up to $100. Yo, Trey. Yeah, Kevin, what's up, man? I was just thinking what would have happened if Drew Brees didn't fail his physical with the Dolphins and ended up playing under Nick Saban in Miami. There's a good shot the Finns establish a dynasty. Tom Brady and Bill Belichick probably don't become goats, and Tuscaloosa doesn't become the center of the college football universe. That's a butterfly effect for real. Hey, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier. We're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Intercepted at the goal line by Malcolm Butler. Sorry, Marshawn, still too soon. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! The Under-20 World Cup kicks off in New Zealand this Saturday. 24 teams, including the United States, will battle it out over the course of the next three weeks. There's more than just a trophy on offer, The Under-20 World Cup has a special magic. It's the stage where the next generation of world-class stars announce themselves. In this Under-20 World Cup pod special, I spoke to US coach Tab Ramos about his team, the players to watch out for, and what counts as success for our nation. But we also talked at length about transforming youth development in the US, the state of the talent pipeline, the search for the next Landon Donovan and the gap between young American players developed domestically and those learning their craft at Arsenal, Spurs and even Boca Juniors. Our guest today is a man who's played a massive part in ushering US soccer into its modern era. As a player, he went to three World Cups, earned 81 caps and scored eight goals for the US team. He currently serves a multitude of roles. He's assistant coach on the full men's national team alongside Jurgen Klinsmann. He's US Soccer's youth technical director and he's also head coach of the under-20 team. The latter is busy preparing for its opening match of the World Cup in New Zealand. Ladies and gentlemen, we welcome to the pod the first player ever signed to MLS, Montevideo Uruguay-born, New Jersey-raised, from his hotel in New Zealand, we welcome to the pod, Mr. Tab Ramos. Hi, thank you for having me on. Oh, Tab, we could not be more excited about you, about the Under-20 World Cup team, and about the Under-20 World Cup in general. I want to start by talking about you as a player, because when I first came to America, you were the star on the US team. A lot of our listeners are too young to have seen you kick a ball. As I mentioned in the intro, you were the first player to ever sign an MLS contract. You starred on the snappily named New York slash New Jersey Metro Stars from 1996 
to 2002. That league's now in its 20th year. But back then when you kicked off, did you players have any idea of what it could grow into? I think if you were to ask most of us at that time whether we honestly thought that the league would be around 20 years later, the answer probably would have been no, um, because we had seen the NASL come and go. We had seen other leagues try to get started and, and not get any traction. And so we were trying our best, but we didn't know whether it was going to make it this far. I mean, what's happened in U.S. soccer now, it's, it's amazing and it's great to see. You're leading this under-20 team uh, into the World Cup in New Zealand. But before we talk about the under-20s, you were one of Jurgen Klinsmann's assistants last summer at the 2014 World Cup in Brazil. When I look back with a year's hindsight, it really marks a, a transitional kind of time in American soccer, the sun setting on Landon Donovan, most probably from a World Cup perspective, Clint Dempsey's era, the ingathering of the exiles of American soccer talent with the US stars, returning almost en masse from the European Elite Leagues to MLS. I mean, there's so many questions that abound about where the next US stars will come from. You're the US soccer's technical director. I wanted to ask you, I mean, our nation, 315 million people, we've not produced a Lionel Messi. No, very few nations have. But a few more Clint Dempsey's, a few more Landon Donovan's, players who can thrive in the world's elite leagues, are they coming? Uh, so I'm hoping, look, I mean, in the end, sometimes talent, as much as we like to pat ourselves on the back sometimes for creating the right development and the right environment for players, sometimes you just have to get lucky on, on getting a special player. Um, you know, I think for us to say that, you know, that Barcelona developed Lionel Messi, I think we all know that that wouldn't be true. I mean, Lionel Messi is a specimen and, you know, has a special talent. Of course, he's been at a great club. Of course, they've paved the way to become the best he can be. Uh, but at the end of the day, if, if FC Barcelona had the formula to develop a Lionel Messi, they'd be, there'd be a lot more of them. And that's not the case. So I think, I think sometimes, um, you know, the end result comes with having a lot of numbers and doing the right thing with a lot of players. And, and I think we are. And so I think it won't be too long before we get uh, more uh, Landon Donovan's and more Clint Dempsey's and hopefully players who even can push the envelope to become even better than those guys. Have you seen a change in the quality of the young, raw athletic talent of players who are opting for soccer in this country? Has there been a shift in the number that you found who are choosing soccer as their first sport over baseball or basketball or gridiron? I mean, look, I don't have specific stats in front of me, but I can tell you that we are getting better and better athletes all the time. Some of my generation of players are coming along it was hard to find players who could actually just connect passes alone, players who wanted the ball and who could pass and move. And now, oh, this is just not good enough. Players who can just only play possession are not good enough. You need players who can play possession but can also penetrate and can also make plays. And so you get to choose from a, a different, uh, different types of players now. And we, we just didn't have that option 20, 25 years ago. I, mean, I, I am interested because Jürgen, when he took the job in August 2011, what, his opening press conference, something that impressed me was how much of a priority he made youth development. He said that was one of his top priorities, looking at the American system and trying to change it uh, from the ground up. The U.S. system, it's been jerry-rigged over decades of pay-to-play programs, local thiefdoms. It's been heavily focused on college 
rather than professional soccer. How easy has it been to undo? Not easy at all, actually, but I think all those things are moving in the right direction. And I think when you look at our national team programs, we're by far not depending on college soccer any longer. Although we support college soccer, and obviously we get good players from college soccer, we're willing to, to bring them along. Jordan Morris is a good example, being all the way on our first team and still being at Stanford. I mean, the, the Development Academy, it's definitely the system is a step in the right direction. Can, can you describe what, what differences are you seeing between the kind of players that emerge from college uh, and those of the same age who've gone the Development Academy route now? Development Academy players, uh, in particular Development Academy players who are, signed, uh, who are playing for uh, MLS clubs, have that very nice pyramid where they can go from a Development Academy youth team all the way to the first team. Uh, and so the best players normally get signed to a contract without attending college. And then the secondary players who are maybe not ready yet for the professional game, they attend college for a year or two before they sign professional. And then the rest of them normally uh, will last the four years in college. And out of the players who last the four years in college, you have probably very few to pick from who will end up eventually in the pros. I mean, listening to you, Tab, I, I get a sense of the colossal task that you're immersed in. You, you, you have to build an environment where the infrastructure, the facilities, the coaching, the training are done right. How far are we from where we really want to go? Well, yeah, I can tell you this. Uh, you know, when you, when you think of how far are we from where we want to go in terms of, you know, the type of players that, that we want to have, I mean, you know, you have to look at something like the Champions League. And when you look at the Champions League and you look at Spain, and Spain has 30, 40 players playing in the Champions League, and, you know, and England has a ton, and, you know, and we don't really have players. I think that's where we want to go. So the, the, the ultimate goal is, I think we're, we're quite far. Um, although we want to think that, you know, in any particular game, at any particular time, we can beat anyone. I think ideally you want to get to the point where you have all kinds of players playing on the Man United's and then the Real Madrid's and then the AC Milan's and then Bayern Munich's of the world, but that's, that's yet not the case. So we want to get there. So that's far. On the, on the youth side, I think that we have made some tremendous changes, um, you know, and it starts with the pay-to-play model that's slowly changing. Uh, and, and because of that, we've been able to control the way the players train and how much they train. Now it's not just practices a week and then four games on the weekend. Now there's four, at least four practices during the week and then one or two games on the weekend. So practice taken a much bigger emphasis, which gives you more touches on the ball, which gives you a much bigger learning curve. So a lot has been done, but I know that it's such a big country that sometimes it takes a long period of time to see the results. Yeah, I mean, it's almost as if the size of the country at some point makes it. I mean, Uruguay, where you were born, the Netherlands, you don't have to scout nearly 4 million square miles of nation. I mean, you also don't need the same coaching supply um, but in terms of that, I once interviewed Tony Laporte, who's your colleague, director of scouting for U.S. soccer, and he was obsessed with the number of hours American youth play. He said he was aiming for eight hours a week, 350 hours a year, but then he read a list. He said, Ajax kids play 576 hours, Barcelona's kids play 768 hours, Sao Paulo's a colossal 1,040 hours of play. Do our young American prospects, do they play enough? Well, the answer to that is no. I mean, our country is a different environment. You know, when you talk about 
Sao Paulo's players playing a thousand hours. Those kids are not doing that at their club. Those kids are doing that all the time. They go out on the street and they play, and they they spend hours and hours every day, and they play. And our game is still at the point where it's a very very suburb uh, type of you know communities where the you know where the the players are coming from, and because of that, there isn't that. Let me walk down the street and meet with seven friends and put a game together. And so uh, there's that challenge, and that's one that's a very difficult one to solve. Having said that, as the game becomes more popular, it will become even more of an inner-city game. I think that may be where the answer is down the road. So American soccer of the future will be less a suburban sport, and it will become a more urban sport, and that's the thing that can put it over the top. I think as it becomes a more popular sport, yes, I think that that could be part of of the answer. How do you scout players for the under-20 team? I mean, the pool is so massive. So many of the players are buried outside of established first teams. They play on second teams, reserve teams, under-20 teams. How many are you tracking, Tab, and how do you do it? Well, in this cycle of U20s, I've used uh, in the range of 75 players at different times. Uh, so they come from a wide range of uh, places, obviously. We start with a, with a depth chart that gets passed up from our U18 national teams. I've also attended um, camps of our U18, so I already know a little bit of the roster that's coming up. And some of those players end up going overseas and they sign in different clubs, so we keep tracking them. Sometimes players come out of nowhere that we didn't know before. Cameron Vickers of the world at Tottenham that comes out of nowhere, he has a citizenship. The Maki Toll of the world at this time, uh, he used to play for France and he played a little bit for the Ivory Coast, but he has an American citizen. So we inquired about that. There's those cases. We're constantly speaking with agents. We're constantly talking to clubs. Clubs contact me directly sometimes. Agents contact me. Um, there's a number of different ways. We have we have a full-time scout in Europe, which is Matthias Hamann, uh, that Jürgen has named. So he's in Germany. He goes out sees youth players. Um, so it's, there's a number of different ways, but it is not, it's nonstop every day. I read an interview with you in Soccer America where you talked about what you see when you watch U.S. under-20, under-23 players. You were talking about their ability to handle a ball with a man on their back, and you compared it to a kid from uh, Central America or South America, and you said, you said their relationship with the ball and the way they use their bodies to protect the ball, you said we... The Americans are very naive when it comes to that. What, what does that mean? It means that we just don't have as much experience on the ball with people around us. And so this is, for me, this is one of the reasons why we have been trying to change our whole youth system uh, into smaller numbers. So later, later this year, what will be introduced, we'll be introducing changing all of youth soccer into smaller uh, smaller games, so small-sided games, uh, not allowing our, our, our kids to go and play 11 against 11 at, at 10 years old and at 9 years old. Uh, we're going to try to make the field smaller nationwide. We're going to try to limit the numbers on the field so the players have more touches on the ball. I feel as, in general, uh, we just don't have a good relationship with the ball. That, that relationship has to get better. The players that we play against, although physically we can handle them, Physically, if we were to challenge at full speed against them, we will knock them over. The fact is, 
most teams we play against have better balance on the ball and can come out of a 50-50 situation with the ball and the control. And so, and so we're learning, and so we continue to learn, but we, we're constantly trying to do things to, to make us get better. At what age does the gap open, Tab? A 10-year-old who's growing up in New Jersey and a 10-year-old who's growing up in Munich in the Bayern system, is there a fundamental gap there already? I don't think the gap is that huge at that age. I think it becomes a little bit bigger as their players begin to get pushed more at the ages of 13 and 14. It's only as we get, get older and older and older that we become less competitive. Spending time in Spain, spending time in any European country, apart from uh, in England, essentially, sad to say, you, you meet coaches who are under 12, under 14 coaches who pride themselves on the fact that they've developed talent at a yearly age, had a hand on a professional supply of talent. Do we have that here? Because it seems to me the American coaches, if they get good, they gravitate immediately to under 18, under 20, uh, and the youth coaches seem to evaporate. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great question, and the answer to that would be no. I think it's, it's normal here uh, that a coach that puts all his time into coaching education uh, it's very difficult to make money in the younger age group, so the coaches tend to go to the older. Uh, we need to develop experts in, 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 younger, in coaching younger kids and younger players. Uh, that's something that we lack and something that we're, we're still focused on, and we know how important that is to us because as much as we can fix all the rules and as much as we can have um, all the answers for how much the players need to train and how many times and how many days, at the end of the day, we need more good coaches and we need people who are dedicated to coaching the younger age groups. And so at this point, that would be the answer. But it's one that we know that we, we still have work to do on. At what age can you truly grasp how good a young player will be? Oh, I think you can tell as early as, you know, nine, ten years old. Um, you can tell there's there's players obviously that that just have that natural ability. Nine or ten, so forty four years old is too late, is what you're telling me. You've just killed my dreams of an international future, Tab. You, yeah, but you can always play at the Tab Ramos Sports Center over forty league <laughs> and do well. I'll dominate. I will dominate. Um, let's talk about the Under Twenty World Cup. Fast coming on our radar. It's going to be uh, broadcast on Fox Sports One over here in the United States. Well, which of the U.S. players should we be keeping an eye on? Well, I think uh, there's, there's, there's quite a few of them. And I think what happens at the under-20 level is um, the fact that sometimes, you know, obviously you have to see how you perform against the other teams. And so that, that performance is what becomes important. You know, teams like Myanmar and Ukraine and, and New Zealand are not teams that we see every day. And so our players, although we are prepared as much as possible for all of them, We'll have to wait and see how they perform on those days to, to really judge. What I can tell you is that we have a very talented group. And, uh, you know, players like Emerson Heinemann and, and Rubio Rubin and Maki Tall and Joel Senora and um, uh, Cameron uh, Carter Vickers and Matt Miaska, they're, they're all good players that I think can make a, can make a great difference. And, and so I'm looking forward to, obviously, as a coach, because we have, you know, I have an obligation to, to do well and to, you know, and to get the team through and all that stuff. But at the same time, I'm really looking forward and excited to watch these players play against the best in the world because uh, I've been waiting for that moment, really, for a year and a half. You mentioned the number of players there. Emerson Hinderman of Fulham has been your playmaker. He's earned a senior uh, cap. 
uh, last year. There's a couple of guys I do want to ask you about because I think our listeners would love to hear your take on them. Cameron Carter-Vickers, the Tottenham defender who could also have played for England. Yeah, I mean, Cameron, you know, although he's our youngest player here, um, you know, Cameron is, is, is quite a player. And I think, you know, what he has at such a young age is that ability to focus and to um, be able to lead other teammates and communicate and, and yet um, do his job with ease. And, you know, he has speed. He's good in the air. There's a lot of qualities that Cameron has um, that for a young player are really unusual. And, you know, this is a player that, you know, we're very excited about because on the field he has all those qualities and because off the field uh, he's one of those players that can lead by example because he's a, he's a good person off the field. He's always doing what he can to help his teammates and, and I, think, um, I think this is an exciting prospect for us. Joel Senora, Boca Juniors, an American in Argentina. Yeah, Joel is uh, you know, a very skillful player. He's used to playing in, in the Argentinian uh, Reserve League, which is very difficult. Um, you know, any player that can, that can handle playing for a club like Boca Juniors and play that number 10 role, um, you know has to be a good player, and, and he is that. Um, I, play with, I played with Joel's dad in, the, in MLS, uh, who was also a very good player. He was an outside back. Um, but Joel is, uh, brings something a little different to, to our team. He's one of those guys that rarely loses the ball. You can always find his feet, you, you know. Um, he's relentless in terms of his, his work rate. So he has a lot of good things about him. One of the guys I've loved watching, your goalkeeper, Zach Steffen, who passed up his last two seasons of college soccer at the University of Maryland to move to Bundesliga club Freiburg in December. Yeah, Zach, is, uh, Zach is at a good moment right now, although he doesn't get a lot of playing time at Freiburg. Uh, he's on the reserve team there. Uh, but he's, you know, we're, we're going through a moment right now in U.S. soccer where we are kind of looking for the next goal, young goalkeeper and, and not saying directly that Zach will be that next great one that will come through uh, because he still has a lot of work to do, uh, but he's certainly one that has a chance to, to be one. A lot of excitement about Gideon Zelalem, the Arsenal 18-year-old who just made his debut for you in the under-20s after coming across from the German youth team infrastructure. Can you talk a little bit about how you've worked to fit Gedeon in, a new player, into your squad culture uh, ahead of the World Cup? It's been easy. It's been quite easy because he's, yeah, he's a good person. Uh, he's coming in to work for the team. Obviously a difficult situation uh, for him to start because the, the expectations are so high. Uh, and everyone has been waiting as if, you know, um, Gideon's going to come in and change the team and lead us to such and such. And, and so what, one of the things we try to do here with the coaching staff is take that pressure away. Uh, we want Gideon to be a happy player here, and we want him to come in and be able to be free and be able to roam around the field and, and do what, what he does best. And so um, I think he's starting to feel more comfortable. Obviously, he's only been with us for, you know, a week, and, uh, and so he's adjusting to his teammates. He's adjusting to our style. Um, you know, and he's adjusting to, um, you know, to being on the, on the U.S. team, which is, you know, it's certainly not an easy thing. Can you describe his style of play from what you've seen so far in training? Yeah, Gideon is a very skillful player. He has excellent uh, technical ability. 
you know, he can play both, uh, receiving with the back to the goal, and, and also he can receive facing the goal, um, obviously a little bit better because it's it's a little bit easier to play that way. So you know he can play a number of roles for us. He can play the eight, he can play the eight role in which he he can be a two way player. He can play outside midfielder on either side, um, and he can play that false nine role in which he steps into midfield to receive. So uh, there's a number of different possibilities for us where we think he can he can help us. We're talking about players who are playing with Arsenal, Tottenham, Boca. Is there, in your mind, a fundamental difference that you notice between the players who are day in, day out playing abroad in Europe in the elite leagues, mentally or tactically or in any way, with those that are currently playing their trade in America? I mean, I would, I would have to say in general, if you were to compare a player who's playing at Tottenham Reserve like, uh, or under 21, uh, like Cameron is, and you were to compare a player here who's playing in a reserve team, there is a difference. But the, the the lucky part for us, or the good part for us, is that a lot of our players we have here who are playing in MLS are actually playing for the first team, and so they that that gap that might have been there because you know in Europe maybe they have a more structured environment. I think it's it's cut down because our players here are actually playing for the first team, and so. There's not much difference on the team. I think we count on all the players the same, and I believe that all 21 we have here can contribute. Tab, what, what kind of difference is it when you say you do see a difference with the Tottenham? They are, what, if you were to put into words what that difference was, what, what would you say? Well, I mean, I, I think it's, it's the obvious, and you probably don't need me to answer this question. You know, if you're playing at Tottenham U21, uh, you're playing with some of the best talent in England, and not only that, you're playing with some of the best talent in the world. So you have players from Belgium, you have African players, you have, you know, Tottenham can pretty much pick players from anywhere uh, who would love to be on, on, on Tottenham's youth system. So in MLS, we're not quite there yet. Uh, you know, we do a good job, or they do a good job with the, with the local talent, uh, but I think the competition in general uh, is a little bit different because a U21 um, Tottenham player is obviously also playing against Arsenal and is also playing against Man United youth team and all these teams who have some of the best players, not just from England, but from the world. The team have emerged from the group stage since 2007 when Michael Bradley, Josie Altador and Freddie Adu led the charge into the quarterfinals. Argentina, Brazil and Portugal are among the favourites this time round. In your mind... What success for the U.S. in this tournament? I mean, that's, at this point, it's tough to say. You know, like I said to the team, you know, there's going to be expectations out there, and the expectations are going to be, well, you know, we have to advance out of this round, and we have to get into the quarterfinals or the semifinals or whatever that is. And, and normally those expectations come from people who have not only seen our players play, but have definitely not seen the other teams play. And so... I don't know how expectations could be out there. Um, I can tell you from our side, what we look at is to beat Myanmar in the first game. I think if we can get off to a good start by winning the first game, uh, then we take it one game at a time from there. I know we're talented enough to compete against anyone in the world with this group. And so in any game, our players here know that in any one game we can beat anyone. And so if we take it one at a time, who knows what can happen? I don't know. How do you scout a team like Minimal? Well, we've watched pretty much uh, every game they've played over the last, uh, you know, eight months since they're qualifying. Uh, we've done the best we can to 
to try to find all the information we can. Their 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 roster that they've selected for the World Cup is is pretty much the same as their their World Cup qualifying roster, uh, and so we are familiar with with their players. Uh, they're very skillful. Uh, they're a, they're a team that can hold possession very well. Um, they've had trouble scoring, um, but other than that, they have skillful players on the field who have uh, who can do a good job if given time and space. Last question for you, Tab. You've been preparing for this under-20 World Cup for a year and a half. You're on the brink of it now. Your squad are together with you in New Zealand. You're working, you're training, you're watching game film. You are in the thick of the preparations. Can you describe as coach how you feel right now? Is, it, is there excitement? Is there stress? Is there anxiety? What, what, what is your state of mind this close to the, to the under-20 World Cup kicking off? To me, it's all of those things. I'm, you know, I'm excited for the players. You know, I'm excited for the tournament to start and see how we can perform. And, and I'm excited to watch the other teams and see what kind of talent there is out there in the world uh, at this age. Um, I mean, there, there are so many things that you know that are good about being in the World Cup period. I know for me, you know, I've been to quite a few World Cups. You know, as a player, as a U20 player as a senior player, as a coach last year with Jurgen in the Senior World Cup, and, and the excitement is always the same. I mean, you're, you're, there's competition against the best players in the world, and I, and I see it as a coach, and we have to spend time preparing, obviously, and that requires a lot of time. Uh, but at the same time, I'm excited to see it as a fan. I'm excited to watch the other teams. I'm excited to watch who the next great players are going to be from not just our country, but from around the world. So there's a lot of great things about it, and I, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, we, we share your excitement, Tab. Please send our best to the entire squad. We will be watching. I know so many of our listeners will be getting up in the middle of the night over here to watch your uh, progress on Fox Sports 1. Thanks for speaking to us. We wish you all Godspeed. I'm, I'm off to join the Tab Ramos over 40 league right now. Sounds good. Thank you very much for having me on. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to Men in Blazers ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Yo, Trey. Yeah, Kevin, what's up, man? I was just thinking what would have happened if Drew Brees didn't fail his physical with the Dolphins and ended up playing under Nick Saban in Miami. There's a good shot the Finns establish a dynasty. Tom Brady and Bill Belichick probably don't become goats, and Tuscaloosa doesn't become the center of the college football universe. That's a butterfly effect for real. Hey, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier. We're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Intercepted at the goal line by Malcolm Butler. Sorry, Marshawn, still too soon. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.